are listening to Los Altos Institute's podcast, The Fourth World, our 13-episode course on global indigeneity, taught by me, Stuart Parker, the usual guy. So, more on this thing that I glossed a bit, uh where I, I mentioned the broad outlines in episode one, but now we're going to drill in a little deeper, which is um, the rise of the idea of indigeneity in the early modern period. So the early modern period is a category created by historians. Obviously, no early moderns knew they were early moderns. Um, but we associate the early modern period basically with the... Um, a uh, period from, let's say, 1500 to 1780. Uh, this is characterized by a shift in economic systems, shift in the scale of the global economy, and major shifts in people's thinking. From an intellectual perspective, the early modern period starts with the scientific revolution or the Renaissance, and it ends with the Enlightenment, which inaugurates the modern period. Um, so this crucial sort of 1500 to 1780, um, we see earlier versions of things that we'll think of as modern later, and some things that are distinct to the period. Um, this is... Uh, Government changed a lot in the early modern period. There was a major centralization of state power in the monarchies. So monarchical absolutism as distinct from feudalism uh, came into being. Uh, states other than China began to catch up with China in creating a bureaucracy that was uh, was or at least tried to be meritocratic. We didn't have the exams like China did, but um, various other aspects, uh, but we, uh, we adopted many of those other aspects. The idea of an expert comes from the early modern period. An expert meaning a person who wields the power of the state based on uh, their knowledge. Uh, the first experts were um, uh, harbor dredgers in uh, Tudor England. Uh, the um, England was continuing to experience a major export boom and um, local towns have been trying to finance um, major harbor improvements and canal improvements for about a hundred years, um, doing some very creative stuff, uh, staging weird parades and plays because they could only tax their roads, things like that. So uh, along comes um, the absolute monarchy and uh, these things are taken away from the towns, our modern port authorities, which are not under the jurisdiction of towns come out of this period. So a lot is changing, and that change is being driven by an increase in the scale on which um, uh, 
you're not just European states, but states all over the place are operating. The this is the period of the rise of the Mughal Empire, the rise of the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, the Chinese Empire is expanding at this time, so we don't want to think of early modernity as just a European thing. Like the Enlightenment, it's a global phenomenon that we narrate from a European perspective. So there are no in, there's no such thing as an indigenous person until the arrivals in the new world. And even then it takes a while to figure out what to do. So I mentioned in episode one, this debate that takes place in the court of the Spanish Habsburgs between two of the great intellectuals of the age. And this again, I think speaks to um, uh, a, um, a new kind of faith in reason itself um, as something that, uh, that can drive decisions. So it's called the Valladolid debate, takes place in, from 1550 to 1551. It's between Bartolome de las Casas, who um, was a missionary to the Caribbean, and Juan Higines de Sepulveda, um, a, a humanist and scholar. Um, this is also useful because there are two perspectives here that to some degree stick around. Um, the humanists are the intellectual movement we associate with the Renaissance. They, um, they're in the process of rediscovering and reinterpreting um, classical texts. One of the things that drives the rise of the humanists is the sacking of Byzantium in 1453 and um, the uh, fall of the Byzantine Empire. The refugees from that empire bring a lot of knowledge to the Italian peninsula. They rescue a lot of texts. These texts help to kick off humanism and the scientific revolution. Um, so the humanists tend to see the most authoritative thing as... Um, uh, they tend to lean much more on texts written by pagans before the rise of Christianity, uh, whereas um, people like Las Casas, teaching from a more uh, Christian perspective, um, they're, uh, they're part of an older tradition of interpretation. Central to the debate, uh, in, which is about whether how to treat these new sorts of people they've found in the new world, these indios. Um, cannibalism and human sacrifice are front and center in the debate. I mentioned before that um, many sort of humanitarian uh, proto-liberal intellectuals in Europe uh, wrote defenses of cannibalism and human sacrifice during this period. And we miss the fact that Jonathan Swift is mocking them as well when he writes a modest proposal. He's not just mocking the savagery of the English occupation of Ireland. He's also mocking these attempts to defend cannibalism in the, uh, in, as a humanitarian project. Now, There's a, a profound history 
to the question of human sacrifice in uh, Western thought. Um, I would say one of the ways I think our society is really touching a third rail with the contemporary gender orthodoxy is that uh, many of its proponents argue that there is something wrong or pathological about caring what happens to other people's children. Now, it's weird because we love all the photographs of different species of animals looking out for other animals just because they're babies, right? That it seems like this, this, this sympathy for infants, this sympathy for children is not just something that we possess as humans or that great apes possess. It seems to be a very common thing among warm-blooded creatures that if we see bodies at a certain stage of development, we have protective instincts towards them. And this is crucial to the rise of Rome as an empire. Roman war propaganda during the Punic Wars, I would say, is um, it's really seriously undercounted as reshaping our thinking. Um, Rome's wars with Carthage were expensive. Rome was the less wealthy power than Carthage. Carthage had more allies than Rome. Um, and so Rome really relied on its superior ability to mobilize its own citizens and to discipline those citizens militarily. Rome had this ideal of the citizen soldier uh, that we see the United States tries to recall as an empire in its early centuries until the end of the draft. Uh, 200 years of idealizing people like John McCain um, so, but Rome still need to, to motivate these soldiers and cause the, so can cause people and cause non-soldiers to be willing to endure chronic commodity shortages because the Punic Wars so disrupted Mediterranean trade. So the argument the, 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 the powerful, conclusive argument that, um, uh, that the Romans made uh, was this. The Carthaginians sacrificed babies to the god Baal, which was true. Um, and they got the people of Rome really angry about what was happening to the Carthaginians' children. This, now, of course, this is all done to justify a war, and I'm not saying the Punic Wars were good, but it really altered, I would argue, it, it enhanced a natural imaginative empathy that we have about other people's children, children we haven't even met. The, the idea that you go to war, not to stop Carthaginians from hurting Roman children, but to stop Carthaginians from hurting Carthaginian children, this is pretty fundamental. And this is all wrapped up in the ideas, uh, and this fundamentally conditioned our feelings on human sacrifice long before Christianization. This is the, um, 
the the sense that people who say, who engage in human sacrifice um, they've got to be stopped there at the margins of humanity. Uh, both Sepulveda and Las Casas were highly reliant on this in their debate. They just used it to argue opposite things. Sepulveda used it to argue that um, this was a um, this was that indigenous societies were the very definition of societies who should be the subject of just war that um, Aristotle had defined a just war and medieval theologians had interpreted that just war doctrine, meaning that uh, a war was just if you, um, if you went to war to convert people to Christianity to make them stop engaging in practices repugnant to God, such as human sacrifice or, of course, sodomy. Uh, this, um, this was uh, this just war doctrine uh, animated um, medieval foreign policy and medieval theories about Christianization and conversion. So... The debate, I mean, Las Casas did the debate after publishing a, a pamphlet called uh, History of the Destruction of the Indies, where which had already begun to influence Spanish imperial policy. And we have to remember that th at this time, the Habsburg Empire is a single thing under Charles V. So the Habsburg Empire basically stretches um, from the Spanish-Portuguese border to present-day Ukraine, uh, with just France in the middle not being part of it. There are some little countries here and there, but the Habsburg Empire encompassed the Netherlands, Spain, um, Austria, Hungary, Poland, Slovenia, et cetera, et cetera. It, um, it had, a, it had a, a land border with the Ottoman Empire that moved back and forth. Sometimes the Ottomans were nearly in Vienna. Sometimes they'd be pushed way back uh, south of Serbia. So a huge portion of the world's population is under the Holy Roman Emperor at this point, who is also the King of Spain concurrently. Uh, those two lines aren't severed until uh, the 1700s. So this means North America, South America, and over half of Europe are one country uh, at this time. That's what the Spanish claim. Uh, of course, they don't really control most of North America, nor do they really control most of South America, but um, it's vast. And so when they're making this policy, this is a policy that's going to affect things uh, at a global scale. And they largely um, reject um, the position of Sepulveda and embrace the position of Las Casas. So what that means is indigenous people have a different set of rights and they're understood to be a different nation. 
In fact, the way the Spanish describe their American territories, well, so they have their two vice royalties, the vice royalty of Peru, uh, which is just the old Inca empire under Spanish management, and the vice royalty of New Spain, which is the Aztec empire, the Caribbean and New Mexico under Spanish management. Oh, and Florida. Um, these, uh, these huge areas, um, within, within them, there are essentially, in the, the Spanish legal fiction, two states. One is the Republic of the Spanish, and the other is the Republic of the Indians. They are coterminous territories, but with different laws. This is um, not an uncommon theory legally, um, Prior to early modernity, the Spanish keep this legal theory while others are rejecting it. The term is personality of law. The laws that apply to you are determined by the kind of person you are, not what polygon you're standing in that's etched onto the surface of the earth, which is how we determine laws now. Canadian law doesn't apply to you because you're Canadian. It applies to you because you're standing in Canada. Uh, and... So the Spanish are doing both things. They are delimiting their territory, and then they have these two overlap, uh, these two coterminous states. So those who live in the Republic of the Indians, um, their labor system is changed, and they are technically freed. Although, as I said before, uh, those in the former Inca Empire um, are still required to do a certain number of weeks of service for the Spanish working in the mines. Uh, but you can't buy or sell indigenous people legally. Um, and uh, they, um, in addition to banning slavery, um, they uh, exempt indigenous people from the Inquisition, that they can't be tried for heresy because they are innocent people, so innocent that they were walking around naked, having same-sex relations, and participating in cannibalism and human sacrifice. So innocent that they they can't be held to European legal standards. Um, I love how that's the definition of innocence, boy. <laughs> sounds like a freaking party to me. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. It's, uh, no, it's really like, funny. Yeah, especially when the Christians, you know, do you, you're innocent because you did all that, right? It's fascinating. And, and, you, didn't whole, know, and you didn't know any better. <laughs> yes, that, that was the whole thing. Did you know not to do this? That was what the whole debate hinged on. Sepulveda goes, everybody knows not to do that. And Los Casas says, I don't know. I think people need to be taught. Uh, and he wins. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a surprise win, really. Um, on the other hand, right, we, as with everything else, we have pretty cartoonish ideas of the past. If you want to get a sense of like um, how disapproving the church was of uh, certain practices, read some uh, medieval penitentials. They're really funny. Um, um, they're basically like confession when it first came along was sort of understood like as a medical intervention. So it was like, so, so the point was that the, the penance you were given was actually supposed to make you stop committing the sin. 
like in you. And so you wanted to pick a penance, not because of how punitive it was, but because it would somehow address the sin and change the person. And so there are these really funny penitentials where normally it's like, well, if a person steals once, you make them do these prayers. If they steal twice, you make them do these prayers. If they steal three times, there should be a public flogging. Uh, and they escalate like that. For most crimes, except for femoral intercourse, um, which is the, uh, what was the preferred form of gay sex in the Middle Ages? Um, and uh, with the, and all the numbers are different. It's like, well, if somebody does this 20 times, they should have that scene too. 80, we might have to have them do a little penitent walk. If it's over 300, there probably should be some public flogging. And so uh, you, uh, you, you would gets the sense that this is like, this is uh, the Roman Catholic Church has many flaws. Being a consistently puritanical organization is clearly not one of them. Otherwise the Puritans wouldn't have rebelled against them. So uh, what this means though, is everything Les Cassis has, has said um, all of his justifications for everything are about bringing souls to Christ. They're about conversion. And Les Cassis really helps to shape what becomes the master discourse of every European's project in the New World. Whatever they're actually going to do, whether it's to open up lucrative trade routes or annex land or whatever it is, it has to be justified and explained as a conversion project. And we get this really until the uh, late 1700s. Um, European foreign policy in the new world is about solving, the, about converting these innocents and showing them the one true gospel. Um, and uh, the conversion really goes a lot better than people let on. Um, first of all, Europeans are brilliant at converting pagans. They, they are bad at converting Muslims. They have no, it's very hard to get Muslims to convert to Christianity. It, uh, and so most conquests from Muslim regions, conversion is by the sword, Spain, Spain being no exception. But that's to be expected because fighting Muslims is, according to medieval Aristotelian law, a, the very definition of a just war. People who believe in a heresy, even though they're aware of Christianity and they choose to reject it and believe a bad thing. So, but prior to that, um, things are rather different. The... Um, uh, Christianity was primarily an urban faith. Um, when it's legalized in the Roman Empire in the year 312, um, Christians begin the long project of converting rural people, which is much harder because what's called paganism, which simply literally means the beliefs of rural people, uh, is highly place-based. Um, we're often given the impression that pre-Christian gods were portfolio-based. You're the god of 
the rain or the god of the sun, things like that. And while there is an element to some gods that way, most gods were local. Um, and uh, your relationship to the god was conditioned by things like shrines, sacred groves, the stuff I talked about before. Um, so place-based gods were very hard to dislodge. And the best minds in Europe, especially after the Roman Empire shuttered all of the academies and forced all the educated people into the church, um, brilliant thinkers dealt with this question. And the process of converting pagan Europe stretched from the year 312 to 1385. It's not until 1385 that the king of Lithuania converts to Christianity. Uh, so uh, the, the, last, uh, the last holdouts. So there's lots of scholarship, quite sociologically intelligent scholarship, that um, uh, Europeans have had sitting around basically unused for 200 years that they can now bring to bear in the new world because they found new pagans to convert. Unlike those dastardly Moors who seem quite unconvertible, except at sword point. So I'm going to read you a piece of correspondence that's thought to have been written to St. Augustine of Canterbury in 601 by Pope Gregory the Great. It's a famous piece of correspondence. He actually gives it to another missionary that he sent to assist Augustine of Canterbury, because Augustine of Canterbury has been sent to the British Isles with a difficult job. Um, the island of Great Britain, south of Hadrian's Wall, was Christian uh, prior to the Anglo-Saxon invasions, but these invasions ended up causing... Um, uh, um, the de-Christianization of the East Coast of Great Britain. Uh, so it's especially important. Um, it's the only mission field where they're losing people, and there are reasons for that to do with a climate event and uh, plague and whatnot. So it's a high priority. So the guy who is, um, who's given an additional uh, advice to Augustine in response to Augustine's letters requesting instructions, Gregory the Great says this, tell Augustine that he should by no means destroy the temples of their gods, but rather the idols within those temples. Let him, after he has purified them with holy water, place altars and relics of the saints in them. For if those temples are well built, they should be converted from the worship of demons to the service of the true God. Thus, seeing that their places of worship are not destroyed, the people will banish error from their heart and come to places familiar and dear to them in acknowledgement of the worship of the true God. Uh, and one second here. I'm sorry, my computer has decided to be cruel. There we go. Um, uh, for since it has been their custom to slaughter oxen and sacrifice, they should receive some solemnity in exchange. 
Let them therefore on the day of their dedication of their churches or in the feast of the martyrs whose relics are preserved in them, build themselves huts around their one-time temple and celebrate the occasion with religious feasting. They will sacrifice and eat animals not anymore as an offering to the devil, but the glory of God to whom as the giver of all things they will give thanks having been satisfied. Thus, if they are not deprived of all exterior joys, they will more easily taste the interior ones. For surely it is impossible to efface all at once everything from their strong minds. Just as when one wishes to reach the top of a mountain, he must climb by stages, step by step, not by leaps and bounds. So you can see that this is, you know, for hundreds of years, there's a, been a fairly sophisticated idea, a procedural sophisticated idea of how to bring pagans around. And of course, they do all these things in the new world. They convert pagan temples to Catholic churches. They um, leave, uh, they leave uh, uh, idols that are not obviously heretical in place. Um, and they participate and they engage in something called congregation, where they resettle indigenous people around churches um, and um, alter the physical pattern of indigenous living. Sometimes they do this um, to uh, uh, make uh, sedent non-sedentary people more sedentary. Sometimes they do this to deal with major epidemics and demographic disasters where they have to merge indigenous villages. Sometimes they do this um, because they're trying to pull indigenous people out of the complex sacred geometry of the Mexico Valley, which is organized along uh, these complex geometric principles uh, called the atl petal. So uh, now in some places, this stuff doesn't go so well, in particularly when dealing with non and semi-sedentary people. However, with highly sedentary people, um, many of these things are an overnight massive success. The conversion of Nahuatl-speaking people in the Mexico Valley is one of the most rapid conversions. Um, and uh, millions convert and seek to be baptized. Now, there are some reasons for this. One is that they're already a, you know, this is already a highly civilized, literate society. Um, the Franciscans have gone to great efforts to learn all they can about pre-existing uh, Nawa beliefs about the world and have written intelligent literature trying to emphasize continuities between the old uh, Aztec worldview and their worldview, the four element system, things like that, they really stress. Um, Another factor is that some people think getting baptized will make you immune to the epidemics. This is a very strong motivation because epidemics are what people are talking about uh, because they're everywhere and horrifying. Um, another factor that the Spanish don't appear to have considered but seems to have been a significant motivator is that of course the high priest class in the Aztec empire um, engaged in cannibalism 
and um, the Mexica were <clears throat> uh, the Mexica and the other Nahuas speakers um, were generally vegetarians below the very highest levels in society. They um, had this, uh, you know, beans, avocados, et cetera, et cetera. Maize. They were able to meet all their nutritional needs without meat. Their um, and so meat was uh, was not a regular part of people's diets there. They were the most vegetarian people overall in the world, um, comparable maybe to the most densely populated areas of India. But even there, people are consuming dairy products and the like. Um, the actual theology of transubstantiation uh, was deeply appealing to people. What it suggested was that the rights that had previously only been the rights of the most exalted people in society were now universal. We have a kind of magic that turns tortillas into human flesh. Um, and so this idea of the radical decentralization and universalization of the sacred practices of the high priests of the Mexico Valley, that was a big sell too. Everybody can be a cannibal because we have a magical procedure to turn these universal corn flour tortillas into the flesh of Christ. So... But there were all kinds of reasons. And it wasn't just the Nawas who rapidly converted the Maya. Uh, Mayan speakers, uh, one of the most important things about Mayan identity uh, historically has been that they view themselves as the most faithful Catholics in the world. Um, the religious social conservatism of the Zapatista movement is always effaced by uh, the uh, left in the Americas, but um, when the missionaries went to the Yucatan in uh, the 1580s, um, they, or uh, 1540s, sorry, um, they brought their teachings, they told, they brought around catechisms, they um, told, uh, they told people their stories, and then because, you know, it's, the weather is really hot and shitty, uh, they fled for a year, but promised to return to the villages of the Yucatan and check back in next year. Well, when the missionaries landed the next year, messengers rushed out to the various villages the missionaries had visited before. And in each village they arrived in, they discovered that one strapping healthy young man had been selected to be crucified to welcome them to uh, this newly Christian village. Uh, so again, one of the things we see about conversion is, of course, people bring together pre-existing beliefs, they combine them with the new stuff. And this is a thing that the Christians had understood since the early 7th century. And that was a formal thing. So I really, um, uh, one of the things that uh, we, you know, we have a lot of trouble with the idea of how Christianity, like there are lots of things that colonialism did that ravaged and destroyed indigenous communities. Um, but we have a lot of trouble dealing with how much of the conversion was consensual. It's upsetting. And we often denigrate the agency of indigenous people and suggest that 
they weren't capable of choosing a new religion, um, which uh, I think is a, is a serious problem. Uh, they remain, of course, the second most Christian group of Canadians, second only to Filipinos. Um, now, all the things I've said up to this point are very much about how Orthodox Christian understandings of the new world really shaped it. But it's not like somebody pinned a blue ribbon on Las Casas and a red ribbon on Sepulveda. Many of the ideas and concerns of people like Sepulveda stuck around. That's why we have things like the counterfeit theory that I had mentioned before. But a little more generally, um, there is a sense of the new world being demon haunted. And again, this goes back to European ideas about the Middle Ages. There's a very, very strange book written by Wallifred Strabo, the great horticulturalist of uh, Charlemagne's court, about um, the life of St. Gall, in which he puts forward a shockingly modern theory of ecosystem niches. His argument is that um, by smashing the pagan idols, uh, the demons are driven out of the pagan shrines and then have to inhabit trees and lakes and things like that. But as we urbanize and as we develop rural land, as we colonize it, as we cut down the trees, these demons then escape and start trying to inhabit people because we're relentlessly attacking demonic habitat. Um, so while Christians generally did not believe the devil was inside indigenous people intrinsically, they believed that the landscape was full of demons and that the demons would jump from different kinds of, into different kinds of hosts um, as the faith and the transformation of landscape proceeded. And that's why we see a real contrast that on the one hand, Europeans leave the pagan temples as untouched as they can, but they're far more concerned about changing the crops that are being grown, changing the methods of those crops. And in fact, this had really fucked the Europeans during the Crusades because they had insisted on transplanting all kinds of European crops to the Middle East and just hammered the efficiency of the local agricultural systems there. Um, Alfred Crosby, the guy who figured out the virgin soil epidemics, talks about this pattern of Europeans when they go to a place creating what he calls neo-Europes, where they deliberately transplant all sorts of, uh, of crops um, that, um, are, that make the place European and Christian. Uh, this manifests in various ways. Um, Europeans also find pigs and sheep are highly effective conquerors. They will destroy indigenous infrastructure and ecosystems that can then be replaced with your more Europeanized versions of them, thereby driving the demons out of the land. Uh, now, if you, um, few little uh, little things here. Now, of course, there are problems with 
treating the indigenous people as permanent wards of the state, as permanent minors. Um, they aren't educated in European languages. Instead, especially the Spanish, go to extraordinary lengths to translate only the things they want indigenous people to read into indigenous languages. And they work actively to maintain or convert indigenous literacy in the pre-existing language, whether that was a literate language like Nahua or the Mayan languages, or whether that was simply a, um, or whether this is the first time people have writing. Um, this is highly effective at um, controlling the intellectual horizons of indigenous people. And the texts are overwhelmingly of a religious nature, which of course means that people, indigenous people who excel intellectually can excel in only one direction, in the direction of theology. Uh, now, I've been really focused on the Spanish experience because the Spanish are the first. Of course, everybody gets in on the game later. Um, and there's kind of a polarity of European experiences of indigenous people, of European ways of dealing with indigenous people. At the one end are the Spanish. The Spanish being a, um, uh, having the status of um, specially favored by the Pope, especially favored by the Catholic Church, are able to mobilize far more missionaries. The Catholic Church has an employment structure that produces all of these monks, all of these priests. They're trained in missionization. They're, um, they're a professional class that is exported to the New World on an enormous scale. Not quite the same for non-religious personnel. People um, who leave Spain um, are voluntarily are not as that big a group. And they're really concentrated in one region of Spain, Estremadura, um, this northwestern region that is uh, very poor um, soil fertility and that largely survive by um, exporting mercenaries, uh, young violent men, to um, fight in the wars of the reconquest of Spain, with uh, gradually driving the Muslims out of Spain over a 700-year period. With the conquest of Granada taking place in the same year as the uh, Columbus's arrival in the Caribbean, Estremadurans are out of work. Uh, Spain has been reconquered. And so if you want military adventurism as your job, that might motivate you to head to the new world. So major gender imbalance. They're sending the least educated, most violent settlers. Um, and uh, so the Spanish are very much reliant on their high indigenous populations. These, they start with 8 million indigenous people in the Andes, 40 million in Mexico, and, you know, that gets whittled down a lot 
to about 1 million and 3 million by the 1780s. But uh, these populations, the Spanish are highly dependent on them for their, as their, as they perform most farm labor and most free labor. And then they bring in African slaves to work in only the most lucrative, least, uh, lowest mortality jobs. So that's sugar, indigo, tobacco in these coastal regions that are had a much lower population to begin with uh, that's largely chased out or destroyed in epidemics. The English, totally opposite. English are Calvinists, officially. Calvinists don't believe in having monks or nuns or celibate priests. They don't have a labor class that they can order around. Um, so the English are horribly inferior at sending missionaries to the New World. Uh, however, England's own incredibly brutal process called enclosure, where they kick um, huge numbers of peasants off their land, make them become itinerant, and then in many cases, um, they criminalize being landless, um, sentence these people to hard labor in the new world. Uh, so that's largely how the southern half of the U.S. was originally populated. Indentured servants who had been peasants and they'd been um, and they'd been rounded up by the cops for sleeping in the streets or begging or they were in debt, went to debtor's prison, and uh, were then effectively sold into time-limited slavery. And once in the New World, had no real way to get back. Uh, and then in the North, you still had a lot of young men um, uh, from economically marginalized, dislocated places in England um, as free people but doing very high risk, high mortality work, logging, whaling, things like that. And, but England spewed out so many settlers, more settlers, the English dumped more settlers into the new world than all other European empires combined by a significant margin. A useful statistic for this is that when the big war which Winston Churchill correctly called the First World War, called the Seven Years' War. It was nine years long, of course. Um, the uh, Seven Years' War began in 1754. This is when England effectively achieves global hegemony the first time. Um, England and France had started their colonial projects in the New World at the same time. England had its 13 colonies, uh, France had New France and Louisiana. And having started their colonial projects at the same time, 150 years later, there were 60,000 Frenchmen and 1 million Englishmen in the New World. Should give you a sense of the totally disproportionate English migration rates. Um, also, in France. Pardon me? How nice it is in France. Exactly. 
or Spain or Portugal, yeah. right? All of these powers, Denmark was in the Caribbean, um, and all these powers failed to really freight over a significant number of people. That's why the Quebecois are so non-genetically diverse. Yeah. Um, they're descended from a group of 20,000 people. Uh, they're, uh, it's, um, yeah, so... What this means, and also the other thing is in Calvinism, you're, if there's a dispute in your community, your community splits. It doesn't, well, the majority doesn't usually dominate the minority, the minority just leaves, which is pretty inconvenient in Europe. But it's a brilliant colonization principle in the new world. The rate of English people's ability to get into fights with each other makes them spread faster, way, way faster into the West. So um, all these things come together. It means that we often generalize our experiences of colonization of the new world, but we, we're the outliers, the British North Americans. Uh, most In most places, and in fact, this largely explains the failure of the French colonial project. There simply weren't enough indigenous people to use as a labor force in Louisiana for Louisiana to succeed. Uh, and uh, so other European powers, it's much more important to try and keep indigenous people alive and on your side. The only English colonists who are concerned about that are not colonists. They're people who run fur trade forts. And they're dependent on indigenous people bringing them the furs. Unlike the French, they never learn how to get the furs themselves. They just set up these really effective factory fort things. Um, and so the people who run places like Moose Factory, one of my favorite Canadian place names, you know, because you, you always picture like the assembly line and somebody like screwing the antlers <laughs> onto the moose. Uh, anyway, um, these places were called factories because they were run by factors, professional appraisers who would determine how much flour or kettles or bullets or whatever you got for the furs you brought in. In any case, other than the factors and the military officers around them, none of whom had come to these places like Churchill to permanently settle, they're the only ones who are really interested, who really need indigenous people to stay alive. Um, the other English are just happy to drive the indigenous people before them so that they'll build fences and houses and things like that that the English people can then take when they need to expand. Uh, so very different relationships. Um, with indigenous people, um, right? The, um, there's a lot more sort of neglect, but I wanna draw a break here. So the English are pretty much the worst <clears throat> of the colonists in terms of caring about indigenous people. But sometimes being ignored is like the, your best option, right? You know, people pay a lot of attention to, um, you know, uh, indigenous people in the Andes, they spent a lot of time propagandizing them, but they ultimately sent a lot of them down the mines to die. Uh, but even the English, as people began to figure out more medical science about the epidemics, even the English drew a hard line on, um, on actively facilitating indigenous depopulation. And what, some of the strongest evidence for that is that during the Seven Years' War, 
Jeffrey Amherst, commander of English forces in the New World, did intentionally send smallpox into a French fort that was being held by um, France's indigenous allies. That war crime was highly effective war propaganda in the Revolutionary War a generation later. The fact that Amherst had come back to lead King George's forces again was evidence that the English were utterly dishonorable and committed the most unspeakable war crimes. And that was used effectively by propagandists for the American Revolution. So we snapshot the American Revolution, even in the 1770s, the idea that you would intentionally cause an epidemic as a tactic in war was viewed as utterly repugnant and beyond the pale and was consequently rarely used until um, really Canada gets going as a state. Uh, and we do see the use of germ warfare under Macdonald, but not under his successors. Um, now, the, uh, uh, let me just see, what else do we, yeah, divergent experiences of the Spanish and English, Spanish dependence on indigenous labor, Amherst. Okay, there's a little bit I'm gonna add at the end about the Maroons, but first, let me just check in. Questions, comments? Oh. Nope. Okay, well, let me, let me fill in this last bit then. Um, we have to remember that Indigenous is part of a three-tier racial system initially, right? You have Europeans. People don't start calling the Europeans whites for a few hundred years yet. Um, indigenous and Africans and being Black comes into being as a distinct category at the same time as Indigenous. Now, there, and I'll, I'll say a little bit about the history of Blackness. Um, people from Africa, um, starting in uh, classical Greece and those early ethnographies, are called Ethiopians, those blameless Ethiopians who still dine with the gods. Ethiopian meaning having burnt skin. Um, the first country in the world to convert to Christianity is the state of Aksum, where present-day Ethiopia is. And the Aksumites remained a significant part of people's religious landscape until the 1200s. So Ethiopian, the Ethiopians would send delegates to the major ecclesiastical conferences until the 1200s. Um, they um, had a permanent mission in Jerusalem along with other Christian churches. Uh, and so there's an image of, and of course the South Coast of the Mediterranean people don't look like this. They look like Berbers and Arabs because they are. Um, these people with this very dark skin 
are just from this kingdom far to the south that's the most Christian kingdom in the world. And in fact, the Portuguese um, build a lot of their uh, 15th century foreign policy on trying to reestablish diplomatic relations with that kingdom uh, in order to form a more effective alliance against Islam. But while the Portuguese are doing that, the Venetians and the Genoans are doing something very different. In the Niger Basin, present-day Mali, Mauritania, Niger, uh, the region we call the Sahel today, um, this is an area of major Muslim expansion and conversion. The empire of Mansa Musa, and the great libraries of Timbuktu um, are coming into being in the 12, uh, 12 and 1300s. Um, those who do not convert to Islam, well, the Muslims have, they also use Aristotle for their definition of just war. And they begin um, and they begin selling their war captives um, in the Mediterranean, except it's hellishly difficult to move um, war captives across the Sahara. A lot of them die because they're using horses. It's all quite uh, challenging because the Berbers think that camels are an unclean animal. The Berbers change their minds about camels and adopt them in the 1200s. And so the volume of slaves coming out of the Sahel and into the slave markets of the Southern Mediterranean goes off the charts. The Italians see a great business opportunity and they create plantation slavery, not in the New World, but on Crete and Cyprus. Uh, and that's where plantation slavery is beta tested. Having a color-coded labor force that cannot escape, very important. Um, and it's at this time that they can't call these people Ethiopians. They think of them as Muslim Africans, which is a great irony because the only reason they've been enslaved is they wouldn't convert to Islam. But um, Europeans are a little unclear on the details. And so the Venetians invent the word nigger. Not because it's a derivation of Negro, but because these are people from the Niger Basin. Uh, that, that's the major river system along which they lived. Uh, but what happens is that term comes to mean Muslim African, Ethiopian then becomes to mean Christian African. And quite quickly, these descend into bad African and good African. And so the Spanish already have this term Raza, which refers to whether you have Moorish blood in your background. They've been dealing with the problems of, you know, that what, what if some aspect of Islam and heresy is heritable? Shouldn't we be worried about this? And so all this crystallizes. So it's not initially that the Europeans think that black people are bad. It's that they think they're only using black, bad black people as labor, which is why they can do whatever they want to them. Uh, because good black people are Christians and they're from Ethiopia and they aren't enslaved uh, and they're not for sale. So part of this sudden lack of European restraint in dehumanizing black people um, 
It's taking place at the same time as Las Casas is winning the debate about indigenous people, which is interesting, right? Cannibalism and sodomy, not nearly so bad as Islam. Uh, that's got to be one of the conclusions that, uh, that they take away from all this. So the bad Africans in the new world. Uh, well, plantation slavery works really well on an island where people can't escape, they can't get home. Ideally, they look different from everyone else and they speak a different language. They're immediately recognizable and it's every honorable man's civic duty to stop free black people running around because obviously they're not free or shouldn't be. Um, this leads to the creation of what are called maroon communities. Um, once um, the Europeans are in landscapes, they control less particularly the mainland, particularly Brazil, uh, where their slaves can vanish into the jungle. Former slaves in Brazil, who um, many, uh, uh, former slaves in Brazil actually become the greatest slave hunters of the 17th century. In some cases, they're brought back to Africa uh, to lead slave hunting expeditions for the Portuguese there. Because it's the Portuguese, until the Dutch take a bunch of it off their hands, the Portuguese are monopolizing the slave market. Now, what that means is that there are these jungle communities all through Latin America um, that were settled and occupied by free Black people for hundreds of years. Um, often doing business in African languages with African traditions and African kings and princes. Um, one of the real, I think one of the reasons the Canadian land reform debate is so bloody stupid is there are no maroon communities here because we have this idea, oh, indigenous people, they've been historically oppressed. If they can just show that they've always lived in this place, we should give them this land. But obviously colonists, outsiders, they have no, no long-term rights to land. Um, well, that's a much harder case to make when you have maroon communities. Uh, and maroon communities have benefited from land reform all through Latin America they have been treated largely the same as indigenous communities. They have hundreds of years of history in a place. They are part of the rural poor and typically um, their lack of land access limits their economic horizons. They're culturally distinct from other populations, et cetera, et cetera. I think that um, the idea that it would be if there were maroon communities of Afro-Nova Scotians, um, it would be really nutty if we dispossessed them to give their land to the Mi'kmaq. Uh, that, 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 might, that, that might seem a tad perverse, that this minor historical detail means one group of rural poor people have even fewer rights and the other group of the rural poor get their stuff. Uh, but that's largely... But the lack of maroon communities here means that the, the land question 
is seen not just as as about historically oppressed rural people. It's seen as specifically about indigenous lineage, indigenous politics, and not in a larger context relevant to everyone. So, uh, all right, I think that that is the that is the spiel for today. Cool. Well, you know, just kind of just in the last three sessions, just as an overarching thing, it's amazing how much our attitudes are shaped three, five thousand years ago, sort of thing. You know, you think you get your, you know, pick up things from your parents, that sort of deal, right? And it's like, no, it's these Romans, that that sort of deal, eh? Uh, just like what you're saying about uh, Roman Carthage and sacrificing babies to Baal, using that as propaganda. Yeah. Then you've got the U.S. doing it with when Britain pulls germ warfare on the indigenous peoples. Yeah. Right? You know, like nothing ever changes. <laughs> well, we, we reorganize things into new yeah. and strange patterns is what we do. But I think the building blocks of our thinking are a lot blockier than we credit. And, yeah, totally, eh? <laughs> it uh yeah because i i mean i i mean i i don't think that i tend to try to view historical actors with maximum imaginative empathy which is not a very trendy thing to do right now but it's way more interesting like what if the romans really did care about carthaginian babies like they said and this comes from a historical methodology so i was um so I have a pretty fucking undistinguished academic career, not just in terms of where I've worked, but in terms of what I've written. But I have, I have got to be in a few cool rooms and do some cool things. And one of the people, um, and actually I gotta give credit to my ex-girlfriend Rachel on this one. Um, Rachel did not feel she was my intellectual equal. She was a very bright woman. But she was responsible for giving me some of uh, most important ideas in my life. And I would say, so I was given the project of writing um, a tribute, a fetchrift paper to Richard Bushman, uh, one of the, the, the greatest, he's still alive, he wrote, sent me a nice note uh, last year, actually, but uh, he must be about 90 now. He is... He was one of the greatest uh, historians of the American Revolution. He was uh, he taught at Columbia for many years, uh, but he was also the patriarch of New York and uh, in the Mormon Church, and you know used his oracular powers to determine people's uh, what what Israelite tribe they were from. Really fascinating guy because and it was all very compartmentalized. Like I never got to see Richard do any magic. Uh, I will at some point tell you the, the story of the bread lady intervention, which is where I, where I, when I truly came to respect Richard as, as like a person with a, a person with a person who is able to get messages that he's going off the rails. Anyway, he was having a tough time. He was finally retiring at the age of 80 and one of the big questions about Bushman is he wrote the definitive biography of Joseph Smith and some other significant works of Mormon history, but he also wrote The Refinement of America and these other incredible books about the early American Republic and what gave rise to it. And 
like Richard, many people compartmentalized this one set of writings from another. And Richard, as he was, as his career was winding down, was trying to let people know that he was actually using the same historical methodology for both kinds of books. And we didn't have a name for it. Rachel found the name for it. Um, Rachel, I was trying to sort of describe what he was doing and then she just had it. This is the hermeneutic of generosity, which is, um, no, this is not a common historical method. What Richard would do is believe historical actors about their own motivations unless there was evidence to suggest they were wrong. So whereas we often tend to believe that people who are far away from us in time or space or culture, we've got ready-made explanations for why they think what they do and why they do what they do. And Richard's like, no, they have the right of first refusal. If their explanation of what of their motivations um, holds up, we should accept it. We should only look for other theories of their motivations and understandings if the evidence doesn't support them as having been sincere. What I've noticed over time um, is that uh, I'm not suggesting people don't have multiple complex motivations or people don't have a subconscious, but the decision to automatically disbelieve people about why they've done something because you don't like what they've done or you don't agree with it or you think it was foolish um, is extremely unhelpful. And so what I find is every year I practice history, my methodology gets closer to Bushman's that I'm much more inclined to really try to understand how things are holding together for people and why they think their actions make sense. And, you know, it's of course brought me nothing but suffering uh, when uh, applied to uh, the other people in this country. Uh, this insistence on saying to people in political debates, well, why don't you try believing those people first? And then if that doesn't work, try something else. Uh, it, um, yeah, so over time when I tell these stories, I think one of the reasons they're a little divergent is I look at people's explanations for their own actions. Even before I look at the material factors and things like this, I, I think I'm, as I get older, I am much more respectful of, of, of the humans and their, their, their attempt to tell us what they think. Uh, so yeah, I think that's why you get a very different story of things like conversion and whatever out of, um, out of this narrative than most people get. And I, I big credit to Rachel Gostenhofer and uh, Richard Bushman for that. Cool. And just uh, another little, uh, thing that just jumped out at me here. Uh, you know, last week we talked about the, uh, how the, British used their vanquished to manage their colonies. Um, yeah, not, not to repeat the mistakes of uh, who was it? The um, well, it was their own it, mis their own mistake in in the U.S. Right? Yeah, 
sort of thing. And yeah, and then, you know, then you have the Brazilian former slaves hunting slaves, right? You know, there's parallels there. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. the... Yeah, that's that's the thing. People if people get into, um, um, yeah. There's a very unsophisticated discourse about power right now, and the really sad thing is that Michel Foucault is being blamed. Michel Foucault's like everything people say about how power works. People who credit Foucault are usually not just not saying what Foucault thought. They're usually saying the dead opposite of what Foucault thought. Foucault's thing was, look, everybody possesses power. They possess unequal amounts. And the thing is that power does not live inside people. It's transacted. That's, mm -hmm. that's where it happens. And so, yeah, there's um, a, uh, one of the things that, that's quite helpful uh, there was like, some countries were able to sustain slavery for a really short time. Some countries could sustain, sustain slavery for centuries. So Brazil sustained slavery for 400 years. You compare that to the French in Haiti, um, where they sustain it for less than 50. And so what's the difference? Well, Brazil... Um, there were various ways of getting out of slavery, using the courts to do it. And so the urban free black population rose significantly. And there were, for people who had access to the courts, and this does not include rural slaves who were the majority, I don't want to sugarcoat anything about Brazilian slavery. If you did not live in a city, um, it didn't matter what laws were on the books, you were horribly brutalized with incredible violence. Um, but if you lived in a city and you could get to court, um, you, under uh, Mediterranean slave law, you could compel self-purchase. Uh, and because Mediterranean slave law also mandated that slaves could have their own money and there was a cap on the number of hours you could work them, people would get second jobs. They would save up, sometimes for more than a generation, and then go and then try and buy themselves from their owner. Uh, or more commonly try and buy their kids out of slavery, um, buy themselves from their owner. And if the owner refused to come up with a reasonable purchase price, you could go to court. The court would assess your value and mandate mandatory self-purchase. Well, what this effectively meant is that um, much of the urban slave population did not oppose slavery. And it was like talking to white working class people in West Virginia today. It's like, well, those people are only poor because they don't have their shit together. I mean, my family is doing fine, right? Because we have a work yep. ethic. We, you know, we have a sense of pride in our home. Look at these poor people on welfare. What a bunch of fuck ups they are. They don't even deserve welfare. Well, you have the same thing with these urban slaves. It's like, my grandfather bought his way out of slavery. If you are organized and self-disciplined and you have your shit together, there's no reason you should be enslaved. Yeah. And that produced a system of slavery that was next to the Roman Empire's the longest lasting system of slavery in the world. Well, it's sort of like 
sort of like capitalism, right? It's like, yeah, you're not all you're not all doing so well, but there's a way out. Yes. Right? That's right. <laughs> and if one you in, make one, the in a, way one in a thousand of you will find that way out. So just keep holding to that, right? Yeah, the Horatio Algiers story. Well, Brazilian slaves had their Horatio Algiers stories with their big break and their all of those tropes of the genre. Yeah. Um, it worked with unfree people if there's this really improbable, as you say, route of escape. But if the route of escape is dramatic and has pathos to it, it doesn't matter how unrepresentative Horatio Alger is, uh, Alger's characters are compared to all the other Pullman porters on the railway or all the other guys working in the mine. His story's compelling. And so judges standing up to local slave owners, you know, um, these dramatic court proceedings, um, all that stuff by dramatizing the few who made it out, who make it out, um, yeah, it becomes a compelling narrative that people can partake in. And yeah, kind of, you know, stops the rest from just all of a sudden rising up at once and killing them, right? Yeah, which is, yeah, you know, because you've, yeah, the... you, you've got a chance, right? You don't want to blow it. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if, the French if, ran if, Haiti, there was no way out. Yeah. Um, and also the French were idiots because they didn't do they they were the only European power that didn't learn the lesson that the Abbasid Caliphate learned that destroyed the Abbasid Caliphate, which is don't have all your slaves from the same part of Africa where they can speak the same language. You really want to mix that up. <laughs> and the French are like, no, no, we're just going to take a whole chunk of them, dump them here, and uh, and then give them no way out and strand ourselves on an island with 